Dear friend, I'm Dr. David Jeremiah, and I'd like to take a moment to speak with you as the world faces the coronavirus pandemic. There is no question we are living in a time of unprecedented uncertainty. It is unlike anything I have experienced in my whole life. And the temptation in times like these is to allow fear and worry to creep into our thoughts and to rob us of our joy. But in these uncertain times, we need to remember that God is still in control. And my prayer for you is that you are healthy, you're in a safe place and surrounded by those you love. Please keep the ministry of Turning Point in your prayers as well. We will continue to bring the healing power of God's Word to you each day on radio, television, and online. And I really hope this will be a source of encouragement to you during the current coronavirus. So be safe, be in the Word, and be in prayer. The Apostle Paul calls it the whole armor of God, a six-piece set of protective gear with an interesting quirk. Only one of them is an offensive weapon. Today, on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah turns his attention to that weapon, which every believer can count on for defeating the enemy. Continuing the series, Spiritual Warfare, here's David to introduce today's message, The Sword of the Spirit. Well, thank you for joining us. You know, uh, in this series up until now, we've been talking about how to protect ourselves uh, from the enemy. And today, we're going to visit the one thing we can do offensively against him. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And you may be surprised what that means. It doesn't mean what it apparently looks like it means. There's something far deeper in that instruction. And we're going to get into that in just a few moments here on Turning Point. We know that God has a plan for us to be victorious in the midst of battle. And let me tell you something, friends. We're in a battle right now. What do we use uh, to give ourselves the advantage The Bible says it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And when you find out what that is and how to use it, it'll change your life. I can tell you because it changed my life. And I realized uh, for once and for all that you don't just carry your Bible around and use it to intimidate people. It's far more than that and far more practical. We'll get to it in a moment first. We're uh, now in the final half of this series on spiritual warfare, which means I'm halfway through the opportunities that I have to tell you about this resource, Answers to Questions About Spiritual Warfare. This 200-page book has been put together with you in mind. It is 86 questions and answers about spiritual warfare condensed into bite size so you can grab them and understand them. It's the kind of book that you will want to keep close because it will help you. And the index in the front of it is very helpful. It touches on everything that's in the book and what the page number is. You just need to have this book, friends. And we want to send it to you for your gift to Turning Point of any size during the month of June, which is one of our very special giving months because it's the end of our fiscal year. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for praying for us and investing in this work. God is using what you're doing to make a difference. So ask for it when you send your gift to Turning Point today. So let's get started now. Verse 17, Ephesians chapter 6, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. One Sunday afternoon, when all was peaceful in his family's house, 
The pastor of a small Midwestern church in the community heard some shouting and arguing and scuffling out in his backyard. Hurrying over to the window, he saw his little boy out in the backyard with his fists clenched, staring down the big neighborhood bully who had come into the backyard. Before he could run to his son's rescue, he heard him scream at the top of his lungs in what sounded like a war cry, I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. (laughs) And the poor neighborhood bully, thoroughly disoriented by this terrifying formula that was foreign to his little heathen mind, turned around and ran as fast as he could from the backyard never looking back. And the family laughed because they remembered that that Sunday morning in Sunday school, the lesson was on David and Goliath. And this little boy decided to take application of that message that afternoon and shout out a word to his enemy in the backyard. Well, before we're finished, we're going to discover that he wasn't all that wrong in what he did. You see, As Christians and as soldiers, Christian soldiers, which we really are, we have been forewarned that we are in a spiritual war. I doubt if anyone here today really will challenge that, knowing what life is like every day in your world and in mine. But we have learned how wonderfully God has protected us in this battle. We have been girded about with the girdle of truth and protected by the breastplate of righteousness his righteousness for us. We have had our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and we have been given a shield of faith, which we are told will quench all of the fiery darts of the evil one. And the last time we met, we learned that we had been given a helmet of salvation, which is God's wisdom for every situation we will ever face. And all of this that we have learned about has one thing in common— It is all defensive by nature. By that I mean it cannot do anything against the enemy. It just protects us against the enemy. It provides for us protection against his attacks. But today we're going to discover, before we close our Bibles, that the Lord has given us one offensive weapon, just one, You might say, well, all prayer, which is mentioned later in the text, is a weapon, but not in the same measure. The Bible tells us that we have all of this protective armor, but we have one weapon with which we are to do battle against the evil one. In fact, this is what the Bible says about this in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. It says that we have been given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, when Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, he used a word for sword that everyone would have understood. He wasn't talking about the broad sword. He was talking about a little dagger. The word in the Greek language is the word makarios. It's a little six to 18 inch dagger that was carried in a scabbard on the soldier's hip. And it was used for hand-to-hand combat. It was the sword that was used when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the garden. It was the sword that was used When Peter cut off the ear of the high priest's slave, it was the sword that was used to execute James, as we're told in the New Testament. The sword of the Spirit, therefore, is not 
a sword that you flail around trying to hit something with. It is a very precision-oriented instrument. It is used in hand-to-hand combat, only useful if you find the vulnerable spot to inflict the wound. So the Bible says that we have been given a weapon that is like a sword, a short sword, and the Bible calls it the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, let me explain to you how critical it is that we get this right. Let's talk about the explanation of the sword of the Spirit. There are two words in the language in which the New Testament was written, the Greek language. There are two words that are translated by our English word, word, W-O-R-D. Those two words from the Greek language are, first of all, the word logos. Most of us have heard that word along the way. If you live in some kind of spiritual environment, someone's going to use that word to name a Sunday school class or a software program or something. The word logos is the word that is used in John chapter 1, verse 1, where we're told, in the beginning was the word, the logos, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That, as you know, is speaking about Jesus Christ, who is God's last word to man. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is God's word to us so that we won't miss the message. That word, logos, is also used to describe this book, the Bible. Over in Hebrews, we're told that we are to honor those who speak to us the Word of God. There he's talking about the Scripture. So the word logos primarily for us today means this book, the Bible, from cover to cover, the totality of God's message to us in the Bible is the Logos. But it's interesting when you read Ephesians chapter 6 that that is not the word that is used. Paul does not write to the Ephesians and say, and take unto yourselves the sword of the Spirit, which is the Logos of God. He doesn't use that word. He uses the other word that is translated by this word, word, and that Greek word is a word we would pronounce like this, rhema, R-H-E-M-A, rhema. Say that word with me, rhema. The word rhema does not mean the totality of the Bible. The word rhema is translated in the most accurate way by the term the sayings of God. So the rhema of God means the sayings of God. It is not the whole book. It is the individual sayings of God that are in the book. Paul says to the Ephesians, take unto yourselves the whole armor of God and especially take the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God. Now, when I was growing up and going to Sunday school and especially Sunday night youth groups, we used to have a thing called a sword drill, where if you didn't know what else to do, you'd have a sword drill to see how fast you could find verses in the Scripture. And they used to call this the sword. Everybody hold your sword up. You remember that? Well, I don't want to ruin your history here, but this is not the sword. The swords are in here, but this is the armory where the swords are kept. And the Bible says that the logos, which is the armory, is different from the sword which resides inside the armory. In this book, there are many swords. In this book, there is a lot of rhema, a lot of sayings of God. It does not say to us, take the word of God, which is the logos. And some people think if they carry their Bible around under their arm that they're protected from Satan. (laughs) No, 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 it doesn't say that. It says, take the rhema of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God. 
In a real sense, this book is an armory full of swords. The whole Bible is full of swords, the sayings of God. So in order for us to be effective, we need to know the difference between those two words. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians that they were to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God, he was not saying, take hold of the Bible. He was saying, take hold of the sayings which are in the Bible. The Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons. It's a laboratory of infallible medicines. It's a mine of exhaustless wealth. It's a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, a medicine for every malady, a bomb for every wound. It is the armory in which you find the swords of the Spirit. So the Bible then becomes a double blessing because here you have everything that God has ever said that he wants us to know. And in this book, you have specific sayings of God that he's given to us for specific situations we may face. And using the sword of the Spirit, the short sword, we're to know the word of God so that we can use it carefully. Now, I need to stop here and make sure you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that the Bible becomes the Word of God when we use it in a certain way. Some theologians today teach us that this is just a book of literature, but when you have a crisis experience in reading this book, then it becomes the Word of God. That is heresy, and that is not what I'm saying. Let me say it clearly, friends. The Bible is the Word of God whether we read it or not. The Bible is the Word of God whether it means anything to us or not. It's the Word of God whether we ever feel anything when we read it or not. It's the Word of God no matter what we do. It can never not be the Word of God. Nothing we can do can ever change it from being the Word of God. It is the Word of God, period, plus, no questions. But from the Word of God, we can find those particular sayings that God gives us so that when we go into battle, we can use those sayings against the one who is attacking us. We use the word of God in that special way. So that's the explanation of the sword of the Spirit. Now notice the emphasis of it. Hebrews 4.12 tells us this, that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Here's another passage that's militant about God's Word. Here's a passage that tells us that the Bible and the content of the Bible is living. It's energetic. It's powerful. It's able to do what no one can comprehend it's capable of doing. It is not possible for the enemy to stand against the dreaded weapon of God's Word. And a material sword, one that you would use in a physical battle, pierces the body, but the spiritual sword pierces the heart. A material sword gets duller as you use it, but a spiritual sword gets sharper every time you use it. A physical sword requires the hand of the soldier, but the Word of God doesn't require anything, just the sword itself. So here's the difference. God has given us this specific weapon to be used in hand-to-hand combat with the enemy, and the Bible says that those swords are found within the covers of this book. Individually, we discover them. 
Now, I want to give you, thirdly, the example of how this works. If you were to appeal to someone to show you how the sword works, you would certainly at least began to think about maybe whoever designed the sword could tell you how it works. Well, I want you to know that the designer of the sword of the Spirit was Jesus Christ himself, and over in Matthew chapter 4, we have an illustration of how he used the sword of the Spirit against the enemy who came to tempt him. Matthew chapter 4 is a very interesting chapter. The first 11 verses of the fourth chapter tell us about Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 3 gives us the account of Jesus' baptism. Now, watch carefully and hold these two thoughts together. Matthew chapter 3, God in heaven validates Jesus Christ as his son. Remember, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 4, Satan tries to disabuse Jesus of that title. He tries to challenge him at the very core of his sonship. He comes at him with everything he has to try to prove that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, well-pleasing to the Father. Now, Satan is going to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. By the way, If you'll read it carefully, you'll know that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, so it was the will of God for Jesus to be tempted. Have you ever wondered why? I think I understand that now. I think God wanted us to see how that works. He wanted us to see Jesus under fire. He wanted us to see what happens when a swordsman uses the sword of the Spirit in the right way against the enemy. So here we have Jesus at the bidding of the Spirit of God taken into the wilderness where Satan is going to tempt him. Now, let me express to you how important it is to know that Satan doesn't have very much of a strategy, but he has a very powerful one. He only has three strategies that he uses. He's used them every time he's ever tempted anybody. He's used them on you and on me, and here they are. They're the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He began his temptation career back in the Garden of Eden when he tempted Eve. Remember, he came to Eve and he said to Eve that the fruit was good for food, the lust of the flesh. And it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And it was able to make one wise, the pride of life. The same temptation that Satan used on Eve, he is going to use on Jesus. Now, Eve succumbed. I'm going to tell you ahead of time, Jesus does not. (laughs) But the temptations are the same. Watch carefully. First of all, he tempts Jesus with the lust of the flesh. Matthew 4, 1 through 3, we read these words. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness specifically so that he could be tempted. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, where did he get that? Because God the Father had just said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan was listening into the conversation. And he said, if you really are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, the first temptation is Satan saying to Jesus, satisfy your hunger by turning these stones into bread. Remember, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. If you've ever fasted, you know you can get pretty hungry. 
And Satan is saying to Jesus, just do a little miracle. Jesus, if you are the Son of God, why are you hungry? Satan is tempting Jesus to use his divine power to meet a human need. He was trying to get Jesus to act independently of the Father. He was trying to play on the human hunger of Jesus to get him to use his divine power to satisfy his own need to do a miracle for himself. How many of you know Jesus never did a miracle for himself? We're told that when he was on the cross, he could have called 10,000 angels, thousands of angels, but he never did. He never used a miracle for himself. He came to serve others not to be served. And if he had responded to Satan's temptation, he would have ceased to be the Son of God because he would have acted independently and not under the Father's direction. He would have done something without the Father's permission. Remember, the Bible says he came only to do the Father's will. He came to live under the Father's direction. If he had used the opportunity to take those stones that were on the ground there in the wilderness that probably looked like little Hebrew loaves of bread, and said some words over them and turned them into bread, he would have no longer have been the Messiah. He would have disqualified himself to be our Savior. It would have been over. But Jesus didn't succumb because he knew about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So you read in verse 4 what happened. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he didn't argue with him. He didn't discuss it with him. He didn't say, I don't think you should do that. No, he just reached into his armory and he pulled out the right sword and he used that sword against Satan. He said, it is written, Satan, take this. And what Jesus said was simply, listen, Satan, God keeps people alive, not bread. How do you think bread came about in the first place? God is the one who is responsible for that. And God can bring nourishment to me, and he doesn't even need bread to do it. (laughs) Jesus was telling Satan, I will not act independently of the Father. No. First round is over, and Jesus wins. (laughs) How many of you wish Satan would quit after round one? (laughs) He doesn't ever do that, does he? In fact, he will take what he learned in round one and try to use it against you in round two. And he does exactly that with Jesus. Here is test number two. The first one is the lust of the flesh. The second is the lust of the eyes. Verse five, the devil took Jesus up into a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, now where did he get that? God the father had just said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan says, if you really are the son of God, as your father says you are, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. The second temptation of Jesus took place 450 feet above the Kidron Valley on the temple roof. Jesus is on the pinnacle of the temple with Satan, and Satan says to him, If you really are the Son of God, why don't you prove it? Why don't you just cast yourself off this temple and see what happens? See that the Lord God will save you. Josephus says if you ever were up on that pinnacle and you looked down, no matter who you are, it would make you dizzy (laughs) because it's a long way up. And the reference to the temple in the holy city is very significant. 
because in rabbinic tradition, they held that when Jesus returned to take away the bondage of the Jewish people, he would come from the pinnacle of the temple and ascend into the temple square, and they all believed the rabbinic tradition that that would happen. So it's really true that if Jesus had jumped off the temple and landed safely in the middle of the temple square, everybody would have said, this is our Messiah. And they would have taken him as their Messiah immediately. Hmm. Some of the background really helps us understand the whole picture that we're painting here uh, as we talk about the armor of the believer. Once again, if you haven't already done so, we have a free item we'd like to send you that I think will be a blessing to you. Uh, it's the Warrior's Prayer, and it, you will find this on a bookmark that we want to send to you absolutely free. It's beautifully designed. You can stick it inside your Bible and do like my friend does every morning. Get up every morning, and when you're walking downstairs, pray the Lord's Prayer, but pray the armor of the believer's prayer. Pray the victory in your life. Pray the armor on yourself. Here's a part of it. Heavenly Father, your warrior prepares for battle today. I claim every victory over Satan by putting on the whole armor of God. I put on the girdle of truth. May I stand firm in the truth of your word so I will not be a victim of Satan's lies. Just the first part of the prayer, the whole prayer is on this bookmark, and all you have to do is ask for it. Any way that you get in touch with us, just Tell us to send you the bookmark. Give us a way to do it, and we'll send it to you. We don't expect anything in return. We're not asking you to send anything in order to get it. No pledges, uh, no promises. Just we want to send this to you to help you, encourage you, add value to your life. Well, we are so thankful that you joined us today, and I hope this will just be the beginning of a great week for you as you join with us in the study of God's Word. Tell somebody about Turning Point today. Be sure to join us tomorrow right here on this good station for the next edition of Turning Point. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's current teaching series, Spiritual Warfare, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected. Our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. When you do, ask for your copy of David's timely book, Answers to Questions About Spiritual Warfare. It's filled with strategies for fighting the forces of evil, and it's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your smartphone or tablet or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries to access our programs and resources. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.org slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, Spiritual Warfare, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Have you ever wondered what your legacy will be? The Jeremiah Legacy Society from Turning Point was created for friends of the ministry who feel called to partner with Dr. David Jeremiah to deliver the unchanging Word of God to future generations. We can ensure that the impact we have reaches beyond our days here on earth. Visit our website at davidjeremiahgift.org to learn more about how you can be a part of the Jeremiah Legacy Society. I've heard it said that too many people miss the silver linings in life because they're always looking for gold. Now, there's nothing wrong with expecting the best, of course, 
but gold is valuable mainly because it's rare. So if that's all we're looking for, we'll miss a lot of other valuables along the way. When the Bible says to give thanks in everything, it means that in every situation in life there is something valuable to grasp if we will look for it, embrace it, and be thankful. Even if it's nothing more than saying, it could have been worse. Well, that makes your present circumstance valuable. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover what God values on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life. That's Route66life.com. Route 66, start your journey home today.